Welcome back to Connecting Minds. Christian Yordanov here. Today's guest is Renaud Purfoy. Uh, he is an internationally known author, therapist, and teacher. Over his four-decade career, he has written books that have been translated into multiple languages. He has also appeared on numerous radio and television programs, as well as on many podcasts. The Anxiety Disorders Association of America, the nation's primary organization for anxiety-related problems, has invited him to speak at 11 of their national conferences. He holds a master's degree in counseling and is the author of three previous books, Anxiety, Phobias, and Panic, Taking Charge and Conquering Fear, Overcoming Anxiety from Short-Term Fixes to Long-Term Recovery, and Anger, Taming the Beast. Uh, today we're going to be discussing his fourth book, Why You Feel the Way You Do. Uh, Renault was in private practice for 20 years as a marriage and family therapist specializing in anxiety disordered disorders, then retired from private practice to teach at a local college in Sacramento, California. He also has a YouTube channel that has videos on a variety of practical life skills. And uh, welcome, Renault. That's a very impressive resume. Well, thank you for for inviting me. It's just a, it's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, so let's let's um, start with your your background, and then we mm -hmm. then we can talk about your latest book. Uh, what part you want? <laughs> well, how did you get into the work that you do? Let's start there. Well, I, I've always been interested in animal behavior uh, as a kid. Both my parents came from farming backgrounds, and so. We, you know, I raised rabbits and chickens. We had a dog and a parrot and cats, and occasionally we'd raise, you know, ducks or other things. And and uh, we trained our animals. You know, I didn't have my chickens where they could, you know, you train chickens on the block where they could get up on little, you know, boxes and stuff because we had grapes. They'd do anything for grapes. Uh, <laughs> and so when I went into college, uh, when I majored in what then was called entheology, which is animal behavior, and uh, uh, Conrad Lorenz had just done all of his work with imprinting, and so that that type of stuff was just still all brand new. And very fascinated by it. Uh, taught school for a few years, and then decided I wanted to move into counseling. I had a friend of mine who was a counselor, uh, MFT, marriage family therapist. And uh, the more I talked with him and some of the school work I did, I just said, you yeah, know, that's what I want to do. So I, I like to work with people. I like to help people. And so I thought that would be a good thing to do. So I got my master's in counseling and. You know, the rest is history. Uh, worked with anxiety disorders, as you mentioned, for a long time. And uh, it, was, it was very rewarding. I, I knew when I got into um, private practice that I did not want to work with substance abuse because I, I like to win. And the nice thing about uh, anxiety disorders is, you know, people get better. You give them the right tools, give them understanding for what's going on. And anxiety, no longer they're no longer having panic attacks. Now it just becomes a normal part of life. And they, they begin to understand what the message is when anxiety comes up. And I think that's so important is, is to understand that emotions are just messages. They're messages about needs or wants that are uh, either being threatened or taken care of. And when, once you kind of see that and start paying attention to it, then uh, they don't stay in the background creating all kinds of anxiety or other stuff that goes on, you know, stress, stress reactions, things of that nature. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, let's talk about anxiety for a, a minute. Uh, so, you kind of alluded it. So how do you approach anxiety? My guess is the first step is acknowledging the emotion and not repressing it. That's causing it, right? Right. And of course, people I worked with had panic attacks. Uh, that was very common. Uh, and understand that anxiety and anger are two sides of a coin. Uh, they both have to do with threat. 
And so partly it's just to identify what is the threat, then uh, how do I manage it? So like with anxiety, again, there, there's a lot of things you can do with it or that, that you do with it. Uh, people with panic disorder as, as, a, as a group, they tend to have very reactive bodies. You know, some people are tall, some people are short, some people are average height. And so your reactivity or the sensitivity of your nervous system is the same way. And so these people just tended to be uh, uh, more like a house where the wiring's not quite up to code. So they pile on too much stuff and then they would get, uh, you know, basically a stress reaction. The old fight or flight would generate the anxiety in the background. So a lot of times it was just a matter of once they got the, the excessive anxiety under control, understanding that, again, anxiety is a message. I need to keep short accounts. I would a lot of times get somebody come in after doing really well for six months or a year and they'll say, you know, I had a panic attack. I, I, I don't understand why that happened. So I'd say, let's go through the checklist. How's your partner doing? How are your kids doing? How's work going on? Uh, friendships, life goals, anything going on that's different? And they say, well, this happened, but it wasn't that big a deal. You know, and so I said, okay, back up the truck here. I, I think I've identified what's going on. This is a big deal because you're having a lot of anxiety over it. So you need to decide what you're going to do about it. And, and that's a lot of what really managing emotions is about is just becoming a realist that, you know, sometimes life is unpleasant. You don't like what's going on, but you still got to decide what am I going to do about it? How am I going to manage this issue in my life? And of course, a lot of times it has to do with relationship stuff, you know, uh, that people don't want to acknowledge. But one, one of the other things that's very common with um, anxiety is something we call emotional reasoning. And that's where you use your emotions to judge whether something is real or not, as opposed to your reason side. And to go back to, again, panic disorder, one of the fears that they often had was passing out because they would hyperventilate. And so I would say, so what are the odds that you might pass out when you go into the store? And they'd say something like, oh, 50%, maybe 60%. So then I'd say, so how often have you passed out in your life? Well, I've never passed out. So based on reality, the odds are very low you know, based on their emotions, it was very high. So that's the first thing that, that people that, that uh, do a lot of what we call negative anticipation or what-if thinking do is they overestimate how likely this is going to happen. And the second thing is what are the consequences? Well, if I passed out of the store on a scale of 1 to 10, that would be probably a 15 or 20. That's the worst thing I can imagine. So I'd say, okay, let's, let's, let's put at a 10, you know, having your arm cut off or your kid get killed or having a wasting disease. Now, how bad is passing out in the store? Well, maybe it's only a one or a two, you know, because really no, no, no serious thing will happen to me. I'll just be embarrassed. Okay, so now let's come up with some things you can do to prevent it and some things to do if it were to actually happen. Okay, you could sit down so you don't hurt yourself. You could say something like, well, you know, I'm, I'm really okay. Just let me sit here for a moment and then, you know, collect your stuff and leave. And, you know, you boil all that stuff down into a simple maybe one to three sentences, uh, you know, I've never passed out. It's not going to be that bad. Um, I've got some things I've thought about I can do, and I know uh, how to prevent it uh, through breathing techniques and stick, things of that nature. And then every time the thought comes up, then you hit it with your coping self-statement. The self-talk aspect is, is so, so important because what keeps a lot of the stuff going is, again, the things you tell yourself, and a lot of times they're not real. Or there are a lot of what we call uh, should-must rules, you know, the way the world should be or the way I should be. And one of the things you'll see that people do is they'll get into what we call circular or what I call circular questioning. 
I don't understand. How could that happen? I mean, you see this on the news all the time. When something bad happens, they'll find somebody who's freaking out. They'll stick the microphone in front of them. And, oh, I don't understand. What's the, why, why did this happen? How could this happen? Well, it's an accident or something or somebody, you know, there's some crazy person or something like that. We understand why it happened, really. We just don't want to accept it, that that's part of life. So uh, identify this is the way I would want it to happen, but that's not what's going on. So, again, what am I going to do about it? You know, how can I protect myself? If it were to happen, what could I do? People who deal with, you know, anxiety and stuff, well, they kind of do this just naturally without even thinking about it. And again, if you grew up in a family where this was modeled for you, that's the way you approach life. If you grew up in a family where there was a lot of this, you know, shed must thinking or a lot of this catastrophizing of events and things of that nature, then a lot of times that's where people learn to do that, that sort of behavior. So it's, it's a matter of just learning how to talk to yourself differently and, and how to just approach life more. You know, I used to say, I, I'm a positive realist. Again, sometimes I don't like what happens, but I got to deal with it. And it's, it's getting that mindset going. And it just it makes it much easier to deal with just all the little things that come up in life. I like that positive realist. Very cool. Um, so definitely I, I, I agree that... Um, we have uh, many of us have this imprinted from childhood, so we model that. And I, I, <clears throat> I probably would be one of those people where, you know, if a a, a parent may have had a short fuse, yeah, back when I was a kid, and I tend to, I tend to have a little bit of a short fuse coupled with yeah. the fact that I'm, you know, from the Balkans, coupled with the fact that I'm an Aries. Uh, yeah. Coupled with the fact that, or at this point, I don't know, we're coupling it, but uh, with the fact that I do like uh, the occasional coffee that will also amp up the nervous the nervous system. I'm a high energy person, so I, <clears throat> when I feel threatened, I can definitely respond quite uh, intensely. Right. So, what are some strategies for someone like myself to to be able to respond from a more productive place and uh, an emotion, emotional base. Right. And, and you're talking about what I call a core response pattern. As, as we grow up, we develop these response patterns. A lot of it's very unconscious. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, you know, and, and there are some thoughts and stuff that go along with it, but you know, most of it is just kind of an automatic response. Uh, maybe getting back to just emotions in general. One of the things about the brain is we are so unaware of how much activity is going on at an unconscious level. Um, you know, you walk down the street or walk through your house and there's a part of your brain judging distance, coordinating the body, looking for things that might be dangerous, looking for things that might be good. And all the while you're thinking about some trivial thing, you know, some conversation you had or something you saw on TV or, you know, things of that nature. And uh, so as you grow up, your brain starts, uh, one of the things that that emotions do is they index information in the brain. They're kind of an indexing system. So as you grow up, your brain starts making associations about good and bad stuff. And whenever something happens that's really positive or really negative, it'll put an emotional stamp on that. And then that information will come up to your conscious mind when you encounter it in the world. That's why experiential learning is more important than, or more effective, I should say, than book learning. 
And the, the analogy I often use is driving a car. I can read everything about driving a car, but until I get behind the wheel and start driving, now the brain can start making associations. Oh, that didn't work. Oh, this feels good. And now with enough of those associations, that information gets sorted. So it can now take on that task at an unconscious level. And I'm just listening to the radio, you know, thinking about where I'm going or something of that nature. Now that's all going on very automatically. And so these response patterns, whether it's how you respond when you're angry or whatever, it's the same thing. Is there things that you've developed partly by modeling, partly through trial and error, and just all that stuff kind of becomes an unconscious response pattern. So how do you change that? Whether this, I, I hit it from four basic uh, levels. Uh, and again, you can take psychology and, and divide it into three general areas. There's the uh, cognitive psychologist, which is thinking, which is the self-talk, belief systems. There's the behavioral, where you just change behaviors. And there's the psychodynamic, which is where you take a look at some of these unconscious forces that are driving it. So you got to kind of hit it from all different levels. And so the first thing I usually do with people is I'll say, let's come up with just a label for what it is you want to change. So um, a kid who grows up in, in, a, in, a, in a family where you know, anger is expressed a lot, then uh, maybe I'm, I'll say something like, it's good to be angry, or angry is how you get things done. Uh, and so that might be the core response pattern. And again, you know, anger, understand, is an effective tool socially. You get what you want when you get angry a lot of times. <laughs> uh, people back off, you know. <laughs> Unfortunately, if, if you do that all the time, nobody wants to be around you, right? So yeah, relationships yeah. aren't very good. Uh, so, okay, so let's say we put the label on what you're talking about is, you know, uh, anger is how you solve things. Okay, so you come up with some things to tell yourself to why that's not true. There are times where it's good. And, and, and let me say, too, that uh, when I talk about anger and fear, I'm talking about a very broad range of emotions. Because anger can range from just irritation sure. to rage. Fear sure. can range from uh, just apprehension to panic, right? And there is a positive side to anger. Anger is what fuels assertive behavior. Somebody's stepping on your toes, and you get irritated, and you say, hey, you're stepping on my toes. So that's kind of a positive aspect of anger. I mean, anger always just looks, people tend to look at anger always from the negative side, and they don't understand that it is a energy and motivation to take care of a need, right? To set some limits a lot of times. And so that's what you want to do is, is not necessarily get rid of it, but just dial it back so you're doing more effective behaviors, okay? So one of the things with anger that I find that's really super important is to learn to do nothing at first. People who handle anger and their emotions well, one of the things you'll notice is a lot of times they'll, they'll pause for a second before or two before they respond. And that's a hard thing to train, especially if you learn to just react quickly, right? Uh, and if you're in a culture uh, where that's going on, you know, then that tends to be how you do it. And, and sometimes that's effective. You know, if you grew up in a culture where uh, people yell at each other and there's a lot of, you know, or, you know, your, your social group or something, sometimes anger is how you survive. Yeah. Here here in the U.S., if you grow up in, in, in a, oh, where there's a lot of gangs and stuff, and you get the reputation, you get in my face, you're going to be sorry. Yeah. That's a survival thing, right? That's a survival uh, mm. tool. If you're in a typical middle class setting, though, business setting, something like that, that tool now becomes detrimental, right? Because it starts to interfere with life. So sometimes it's taking a look at, you know, where did that this come from? And maybe it was useful back there, but it's not useful now. So you got to come up with things to tell yourself why you want to change. 
And then the next thing to do is you identify specific situations where that behavior comes up. Well, um, and you just got to watch yourself for a week or two. Okay, uh, I tended to blow up here, I tended to blow up there, or I got really over anger there. And then you start identifying what's the opposite behavior I could do. And you just start practicing that. And understand that you will not do well when you are sick, hungry, tired, or stressed. And this is the other thing about changing behavior is that a lot of times negative behaviors are simply an indicator that you're stressed out or that you're sick, hungry, yeah, tired. Yeah, yeah, for sure. In which, and, you know, and a lot of people aren't aware of that. You know, they think, well, I can just make myself function in regards to how I'm feeling or how tired I am or how hungry. And that's not true. You know, we have your body is a machine with a limited amount of energy and limited resources. And so when those indicators, usually old behaviors, things you don't want, start coming up, it's a time to just shut your mouth, take care of basic business, and let all the other stuff handle. I mean, when you deal with parenting, this is one of the things, right? When you're sick, hungry, tired, and your kid's misbehaving, just forget about training all this more sophisticated stuff, maintain order, do what you need to do. <laughs> that other stuff you can take care of later on. And the yeah. same thing with yourself. If, if I know I'm sick, hungry, tired, I'm not going to try to solve all these other problems. I'm just going to deal with what I need to deal with and focus my energy. That's hard to do because when you're sick, hungry, tired, stressed, all the little stuff becomes super important. You know, everything your spouse does that irritates you suddenly becomes important, right? I got to deal with it, right? And when you're, when you're well-fed and you're calm and everything else, it doesn't bother you. So yeah. that's just, again, another indication that uh, when those behaviors are coming up, I need to use that as a signal to myself that uh, I need to just take care of basic business and, you know, let the other stuff slide. Uh, because it does seem to become super important at those times. And and you kind of summarize some of the stuff on little cards and you just remind yourself over the course of a week or so of these things. And That's, sorry, I'm sorry to interrupt you. That is exactly what I was thinking now. I need to write this down on some some post-its and yep. carry it with me. Because, sorry, please continue. Well, yeah, and that's what I do in the book is, I, is actually we'll have some examples how people write this stuff down. And just read it for about a week. And then by that time, it's kind of drilled in your head, then you can put it away. And then maybe a month or so later on, pull it out again, read it again, and go through two or three cycles of this. And then you'll find uh, you will modify your behavior over time, especially if you've got some very specific opposite things to do. Uh, you know, okay, when I get angry or I'm irritated, I need to pause and I need to decide what really is the issue here? You know, where's the threat? What do I want? Okay, that's what I need to do. Because again, a lot of times what happens when people get emotional, the frontal lobe shut down, the cognitive part of your brain is not working well, and so you're not thinking clearly. So you need to pause, kind of regain control over those frontal lobes uh, and start deciding, what do I want? You know, what's important here? And then focus on that. Because when you're angry, like I said, everything, all the little stuff comes up. A lot of times it's, it's totally irrelevant, but uh, suddenly it all has to be dealt with and, and you lose track of what your central issue is. Yeah. <clears throat> This is gold, Renaud. Yeah. Real, really gold. I have to, I'm definitely going to buy your book and read it because <laughs> I, yeah. this is really, really good stuff. Um, yeah. When, when you frame it in that way, so when you were, so I've noticed in the morning, when you have more of a reserve, you know, you're yep. still, still not tired yep. when you, but you, you're, you have your breakfast, so you're not stressed. You're not yep. Yep. tired. You're not hungry yep. and you're feeling well, you're not sick. Yep. 
things don't perturb you but by the end of the day when you know yeah. we've done a bunch of stuff it's time to get the kid ready for sleep and 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 bathed yeah. and fed and oh yeah. where i can't find this like where is that where did you leave this that's when things start to escalate more easily over really very minor things sometimes so and so I, that's a matter of just training yourself don't let it go <laughs> Focus on just getting them into bed, you know, getting their teeth brushed or whatever. And that's all you got to do. All this, you know, the toys on the stairs or whatever, that stuff I'll take care of tomorrow when I got my wits about me. Yeah, I like that. Definitely maybe and having some reminders around the house, uh, around the house, just say just uh, something along the lines of just get the basic needs sorted or something like that. That would be helpful. Yeah, and again, like I said, you practice it real intensely for about a week, and then you know you, you get tired of practicing this stuff. So you do it for about a week, and usually you've made some headway. And then you know a month or so later, uh, you hit it again, and you kind of reinforce that. You go through a couple cycles of that, and you'll find that yeah, you do start really uh, your behavior does change. Like that. So in your book, there's also. Uh, you tackle the topic of understanding guilt and shame and how to manage them. Do you think guilt and shame are at a layer of complexity when it comes to anxiety and anger that we express it? So maybe there's a uh, lower down the hierarchy. Yeah. Well, you know, the, guilt is basically I've done something I shouldn't have done, right? <laughs> so it's, it's, uh, it ties into your uh, belief structure of what, how I should be, what I should or shouldn't do. And so you deal with it on, on that level. And again, some cultures are very uh, shame and guilt oriented, and some aren't. Right? Uh, I mean, guilt is a very effective tool for trolling kids. Yeah, that's why some kids where, where you get a lot of guilt, you get a lot of doctors and lawyers and that type of stuff, right? <laughs> uh, uh, and so, really, that's more of an exploration of you know uh, what. What should you have done, and uh, is it reasonable or not? And if you've done something that you believe you shouldn't have done, then how do you correct it? You know, and and sometimes you can't do anything for the past, and so you decide how am I going to respond differently in, in the future? Shame is more somehow I'm tainted. You know, somehow I'm less of a person because of what I've done. And of course, a lot of times shame has to do with childhood stuff. Uh, either because you had a parent who shamed the person a lot, or there was sexual abuse or things of that nature. So somehow I'm as a, as a as an individual, I've been tainted. I'm, I'm no longer worthy uh, or as valuable as other people. And so again, that's a belief system you have to take a look at. And uh, depending upon, you know, it's it's a very broad issue. So depending upon what specifically you're talking about, a lot of times it gets down to self acceptance and the fact that you know this happened wasn't my fault or maybe it was my fault uh, if as an adult but like as for kids stuff most of the time it's you know this you know had nothing to do with you it had to do with the adults and so the shame that I'm carrying really uh, if you if you imagine a child going through what you went through how would you react to it usually people get angry and they say no well, that's not, not right well that's the same thing for yourself so that's kind of a therapeutic thing that you work with with people. Uh, it's it's hard to give general guidelines sure. because again, both of these um, really tie into those should must rules about who I am or the way the world should be 
uh, and taking a look at those and, and are they reasonable or not? Um, are, are they realistic? So working with that is, is basically how I've worked with that. And like I said, most of what I've dealt with, it has to do with uh, childhood stuff and either guilt over things they've done. And it comes to just accepting that you're a human being and you screw up. And so, okay, you make amends and you move on. And that's really hard for some people. Yeah. I guess there's a lot of modeling and imprinting again from childhood from what our parents were presenting as examples of behaviors. Well, what and, about and the, yeah. and the messages that you get about who you are as a person, right? Yeah. Am I okay or am I not okay? A lot of kids grow up in, in families where they get all kinds of mess blamed and stuff for things that really it's the parents' stuff. You know, the parent yeah. screws up and so they blame the kid. Uh, and so now the child starts accepting anything bad that happens. Somehow it's my fault. I don't understand, but somehow yeah. there's a connection there. Yeah. Uh, and so that's that's kind of a deeper thing that usually you got to work with one on one with somebody. Mm. And so you've done you've had, you've done quite a lot of work with uh, couples therapy, marriage counseling, right? Actually, most <clears throat> of it it was with individuals. Mm -hmm. You know, I did some couple stuff, but most of it was with individuals. Uh, that was my uh, again working with anxiety uh, and anger. You know, yeah. I, I would enlist the aid of the of the whoever the partner was, uh, but mostly it was one on one with people. Okay, and. Um... So would you would you be able to get because uh, I'm married? Obviously, it's I'm sure a lot of people listening have a long term relationship going. Would you? Is there any tips you could give us on how to improve the interpersonal communication between partners in 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 the household? Well, you know, there there's a lot of books out there that talk about you know how to do fair fighting, you know how to. Uh, uh, put what you want out there in a way that's not going to blame or escalate things. Uh, that can be learned. Um, you know, it gets into, you know, assertiveness and assertiveness really is just how do you deal with conflict, right? We all have, we all, whenever you have two or more people together, you have conflict. You know, I want to watch this. You want to watch that. I want to go to have this food. You want to go have that food. How do we resolve that conflict? And so, uh, I, I think of it a lot of times as um, as as how do you, how do you well and again sometimes you want to be there's three styles for resolving conflict right there's aggressive uh, there's the assertive and then there's non-assertive non-assertive you think, if you think of it in terms of of uh, rights and stuff you know uh, you get what you want and I ignore my needs right I, I should have said needs instead of rights. So that would be non-assertive behavior. And sometimes that's appropriate, right? If I'm in a situation where somebody is robbing me and they got a gun or something, uh, you know, you take, take my wallet, you know. Uh, my need in that, that situation is not important. Uh, if I'm in a job where I've got a boss who uh, is really not a very good boss, but I really need the money to feed the kids, sometimes non-assertive behavior is appropriate. Uh, likewise, sometimes aggressive behavior is appropriate. If I'm a police officer or a fireman or something like that, I'm in a situation where I need to take care of an emergency. Sometimes I need to be a little aggressive about doing that, and that's appropriate. Again, if I grow up in a culture or a neighborhood where aggression is valuable uh, for survival, then that's appropriate behavior. 
again, in a lot of, and, and sometimes we'll take those things from childhood or from those cultural or whatever things, and we'll bring it into a situation, whether it's a middle-class business situation or a relationship, where now it's no longer being useful. So the assertive approach where I try to come up with some kind of compromise, you know, get some of your needs met, get some of my needs met. And that's really what we talk about when we're talking about assertive behavior. It's not always the, the most appropriate method, but uh, if you're in a middle-class uh, Western situation, probably it is the most appropriate or most effective, I should say, way of getting what you want and having good relationships with people. So it's a matter of basically identifying what do I want, how do I put it out there in a way that's uh, very direct and uh, non-accusatory. Going back to couples, it's interesting because sometimes you'll have couples who are fighting over something, and so you'll say, so so what do you want in this situation? You're talking about addressing one person. Well, you know, this person does this, and I do that, and I, I can't stand it when I do that. So what do you want in this situation? Well, I, you know, and then they do that. And I've, I've had one couple where we went on for 20 minutes before the person finally said, well, this is what I want. And so when you deal with conflict, the first step is, what do you want? Focus on that. Because again, all these other side issues about how they're doing this or doing that sometimes will get involved with that. So getting clear about, you know, I just, I, I, I need you to be on time or I need this or I need that or this is what I want and putting that out there without all that other accusatory stuff, side, side trips that people often make. And that's a skill that takes some, some training, but you can learn to identify, okay, let me take a moment. I'm, all these things are coming up in my brain, but what is it that I really want in this situation? And then focus on that and put that out there in, in, in a, just a simple, direct way. You know, I, I, I need this or I would like that. I, you know, I, I got embarrassed when you joked about uh, this incident in the past, and I really wish you wouldn't do that, you know, because I, I don't like to be embarrassed like that. So what, whatever it is, you know, you, you can put it in very direct and simple terms. And that's so if- again, skill of learning so if the part if you feel like your partner is um let's say upset or perhaps they're trying to assert something in not the most productive way or there something is amiss maybe that question what do you need do you need yeah, what do you right need now? what do you want yeah is a good and, you know, th- again that's hard sometimes for people to identify and you know, part of being successful in marriage. Now, I, I, we just celebrated our 49th year of marriage. Wow. My wife and I. <laughs> uh, Fifty years next year, and at part of being successful in marriage too is come and just accept some of the, some of the the, the 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 idiosyncrasies of your of your spouse. That you know they're just funny <laughs> that way, you know. Yeah, yeah. And there's nothing I'm going to do to change it. So quit trying to change it. And just figure out how do I work around it. And uh, we live in a culture where there's not a lot of tolerance for that type of stuff. It's, you know, I'm in a relationship because you're here to satisfy my needs and take care of me and for it to feel good. And uh, as soon as it quits doing that, I move on. You know, with younger people, especially this idea of kind of a, you know, you're here to take care of my needs uh, attitude, whether it's expressed or just kind of underneath it is so common. And marriages you know relationships go through kind of a cycle you know you start off with that honeymoon phase you know where everything is just so wonderful and if you do the uh, mris on the brain you find that the uh, especially with women more so than men 
the emotional centers are all lit up. The frontal lobes are kind of quiet, you know. And then at some point, you get that disillusionment, you know. You realize that, wow, this person is not who I thought they were, you know. And then you start going through a phase of kind of what we call rule negotiation, right? How, how do we set the pr- parameters of our relationship? And sometimes that's done through trench warfare, you know, you can get there and fight. <laughs> and they can do that sometimes for 20 years, right? They can yeah. stay stuck there. Uh, yeah. If you can get through that and you start to negotiate, okay, who turns down the light? Who puts the cat out? Who, you know, who does this? Who does that? And you kind of work that stuff out in a way that's, you know, reasonable for both of you then you can start to move into um, a, a set of intimacy that's really very deep and what people really want. Again, there's difference from true intimacy and infatuation. You know, infatuation is a hormonal thing, uh, and a lot of times that's what people are chasing is they want that hormonal infatuation all the time, and so they never get through the rule negotiation because as soon as it comes up, then they're out of there. If you can work it through, then you get somebody who you can really trust, who you know has your back, that you're comfortable with. I can tell them anything that's going on in my life, and they'll accept me. Uh, that's a wonderful feeling to have with somebody. Uh, and unfortunately, a lot of people never get there because they you know, never get through that phase. And, and, and let me add, get, again add a caveat to that. You have to be in a relationship where the other person is capable of intimacy. And again, sure. that's something you have to take a look at when you're in the early stages of dating. I know uh, it's not popular to say, but especially with women, I always tell them, don't get into a sexual relationship right away. Take some time to evaluate whether this person has the capacity for intimacy and some of the qualities that you want. Because if you once you start getting sexually active, like I said, those emotional centers gonna flare up and everything looks wonderful. And then six months down the road, you know, you look at it and you say, who is this person? You know, this is not yeah. what I what I signed on for. So you want to do that evaluation. So you want to wait at least a week, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's nice if, 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 you know, and again, it used to be people took longer time, and so you had yeah. time to evaluate. And plus people were looking for some of those things. You know, they were starting yeah. to identify, does this person have the capacity to have a relationship that I want? And again, nowadays, unfortunately, people bypass that because they're just looking for that quick, you know, high, or I need that uh, infatuation, or, you know, somehow the sexual stuff is, is, is feeling good uh, and satisfying some, some intimacy needs that I have. And, um, yeah, take time. Take time and yeah. evaluate the person. And look for those little things. How do they deal with disappointment? You know, when you do have a conflict, how do, are they willing to negotiate with you? Uh, when you want to go out to a movie or dinner or something, uh, do they listen to you and do they negotiate? Or do they just say, no, I, I want to go here and they go there? You know, th- those types of things, yeah, yeah. Whether, it's, whether it's a guy or a gal. Yeah. So we, we, all, we always we have rises and falls and kind of rhythms with ourselves. And sometimes we're in a, down in the dumps. Other times we're kind of elated. Everything yeah, is going yeah. well. What are some, if, if, you, if your partner's kind of, down in the dumps or going through a phase or they're complaining more uh how do how do we snap them out of it in a kind of non-accusatory productive way would you say well sometimes you can't and you know you you can't make somebody be the way you want them to be i mean you you can you can encourage you can you know provide uh help 
and listening, that type of stuff. But sometimes, you know, there's not a lot you can do. And this is why you need to have a support network of your own. You know, uh, for men, for example, they used to have lots of support network. They'd have, you know, the lodge, they'd go out, you know, hunting, or they'd have, you know, groups that they would get together with. And people nowadays are often very isolated. And so having other relationships so that this is not where I get all my needs met. You know, same thing with women. They used to have lots of things where they would get together with other women and they would get some of their emotional needs met because I cannot take care of all the needs of my wife. She's got some things she likes to do and stuff that I just not interested in. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So she's got, so she gets together with her daughter. She, she has some women that she gets together with and that type of stuff. And yeah. uh, that's where she gets some of those needs met. That's the other thing that I think that's a problem with a lot of relationships nowadays is people don't have those outside uh, places where they connect. So they're trying to get all their needs met from that one person, which is an impossible task. So having a wide variety of, uh, of people. And if, if the spouse is truly uh, depressed or something's going on, then maybe you know, find somebody to help, help them with that or help you as a couple with that. It's important. Uh, yeah, a lot of people grow up, they're damaged uh, because of their childhood. And a lot of times they don't even realize it. You know, and they get relationships and sometimes, you know, you need, they need to deal with some of that stuff in order to, to have true intimacy. Yeah. Totally it, it gets, in fact, it's interesting because this whole thing gets into the, the latter part of the book, the three things that make people happy. And uh, the first one is relationship. By and far, above everything else, having relationships that are fulfilling and intimate and satisfying is the number one thing that makes people happy. You go to developing countries, right? And people have all kinds of people in their life. They have, you know, extended family. They have, you know, their village or their block or whatever. And we used to have that industrial countries too. You know, we didn't move around all the time. We had people we would grow up with. Nowadays, we're so mobile that a lot of times uh, there really isn't much of a social network. And so, again, everything goes on to, you know, my, my, my partner supposed to satisfy all my needs so having rich relationships uh whether it's just a single person or a variety of people because you can be single and have a lot of friends and very rich relationships and that can take care of that need you look at a lot of especially the younger generation they're getting that relationship needs met through social media and that's why you see so much anxiety and anger and that type of stuff going on because it's really not satisfying at a deep level. Uh, when you look at the different emotions that people have, uh, neuroscience has kind of identified seven core emotions, and four of them have to do with relationships. Uh, there's like two circuits, one that's called uh, panic, but in babies we call it separation anxiety. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's why we miss people when they're gone. And there's this corresponding caring circuit. So whether we're talking about puppies or humans or whatever, you know, the baby cries, that triggers the caring circuit. So you want to comfort it. That's two very key circuits in what we call love and intimacy with relationships. They don't get satisfied through a superficial, you know, social media where everybody is living a better life than I'm living. Yeah. <laughs> uh, The other thing that's important is having purpose in life. And a lot of people have no real purpose. That's why things like saving the earth, you know, global warming, and, you know, or COVID or these types of things take on such importance to people because it gives them a purpose. 
uh, and we need a purpose that's larger than ourselves a lot of times. Uh, so how you, I mean, with me, part of my purpose is I, I have, you can have more than one, is helping people. I like helping people, and I get a lot of satisfaction yeah. when I do that. Uh, and even it, it, I, in my church group, I, I teach kids guitar, you know, I, I play you know, guitar nice. on Sunday, you know, that type of stuff. So I have a lot of things where I'm, I'm tying in with people, and it gives me a purpose, for, a reason for getting up in life. And it could be that you know, being a good parent or selling the most widgets is your purpose, and that's okay. <laughs> Again, the broader the purpose, the better it'll work. Uh, and then the third one is meaning, and this is the one that's hard to really define in clear ways, but it's how you answer the big questions in life. You know, is there a God? Is there not? Why am I here? What is the purpose of life? And again, in the West, we tend to be very, very weak in that area of our life. We don't think about it because we're constantly pursuing entertainment. We're constantly pursuing things. And so we never take time to quiet down and answer those big questions. Mm -hmm. I know in, in the back of the book, I just spent just a very brief amount of time. But one of the things I, I mentioned is some of the near-death experience uh, work that's been going on since the 70s. Um, Raymond Mooney wrote a book, A Life After Life, where he mm -hmm. talked about uh, people who are having these near-death experiences, and that kind of kicked off a lot of research. There's one that, that was recently done with a lot of people, and it's been very clearly established that there's something going on that science cannot explain. Yeah. And so if you accept that maybe there's a spiritual side of life, something that, you know, more than just getting things and then you die, then again, that needs to be incorporated into my meaning. And meaning is how you make sense out of the world when there's crazy stuff going on. There's things going on in Ukraine, you know, things going on in China, things going on all over the world. And so how do I give some kind of meaning to that in a, in a, in a broader sense? And if you have positive answers for that, or answers at least ways that help you understand it and put it in context, then that helps you with the little disappointments that come up in life as well. But again, that's something that people don't spend much time thinking about because, again, like I said, they're so busy pursuing entertainment or getting things that they never quiet themselves to answer the big questions in life. And whether you take a, you know, a, a traditional religious approach or uh, some philosophical approach, you know, I, I leave that up to people. It's not, not for me to you know, preach one thing or the other, but you do need to address that aspect of your life. That is brilliantly said. I love everything. Everything you said so far is just resonating really on, on every level with me. Hmm. It's, it's interesting. I, I, I used to, <laughs> one of the fun conversations I would have with clients is, is you know, is I just ask him, so, hmm. so, you know, what's, what, what's important to you? What, what, how do you answer those existential questions about your existence? You know, why am I here? And that type of stuff. And those would be very interesting questions uh, for people to ponder because a lot of times mm -hmm. people haven't really thought it through and come up with, a, with an answer that's satisfying for themselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I've read some of, <clears throat> some of the stuff around near-death experiences and the, the kids that remember past lives, the reincarnation research and... Um, you know, having taken the occasional entheogenic, uh, there's a lot, there's a lot that opens up there if you decide to look for it. I think a lot of people, maybe just that fear of death that Western society sort of imposes on us from an early age, uh, that fear of death. So we don't want to think about those things. 
maybe prevents us from actually finding that deeper meaning because once you kind of kind of get over the fear of death i don't i don't suppose the the you can uh get over the physical aspect of it but i guess the more psychological spiritual aspect you can you can grapple with and eventually understand <laughs> at a deeper level that it's it, death could be just a, another gateway to another dimension another life another existence as long as, as long as you realize that consciousness is eternal that the consciousness that animates your body is eternal and that is who you truly are i, I think a lot of a lot more meaning comes from existence and like you said or, uh, already the the little things st start to bother you a little bit less and again yeah because it gives you context and, and i would postulate that fear of death is not just a western thing it's pretty universal <laughs> uh it's 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 one of, one of the big things that underlies a lot of other stuff uh, with people uh and it's it's, it's pretty universal because uh, we all got to face it. You know, and, and, and it's interesting because it used to be death was a, a normal part of uh, life. Uh, my mom did a lot of genealogy work. And uh, up before World War II, you know, women had lots of kids because a lot of them died early on in life. Uh, and so you experienced death. And in our modern world, a lot of people don't really experience it until they're quite older and then you know they, they might be in their 20s 30s or 40s before they have a friend or somebody they know dies on them and so it, that in itself becomes quite a shock for a lot of people just yeah. dealing with how do i deal with that disappointment yeah uh, i know at my age it's you know i get a lot of people i know that are dying so i yeah i deal with it all the time and that's that's one of the things as you get older mm. we, we, we might talk for just a minute too about some of the different emotional circuits we have because I, I find that's really interesting, sure. and I spent some time with that. One of the ones that I found uh, really interesting, well, in fact, let me, let me back up, because neuroscience talks about affects, and affects are a drive to do something. It generates energy in your body, and, and it focuses your mind on something. So the most simplest affects are heat, cold, and pressure, right? If I'm really cold, I want to get warm. If I'm sitting too long, i got to move around, right? And then the next level of affects are what they call the homeostatic affects, uh, keeping a balance in your body. That's just a fancy word for balance. So hunger and thirst are two big ones, right? If I'm hungry, I really get focused on getting something to eat. If I'm thirsty, I really want to get uh, something to drink. Yeah. And so emotions are kind of a higher level of affect that gets tied into, again, that conscious part or that thinking part of our brain. And... Um, one of the ones that was really interesting for me when I was researching this was something that they call seeking. Seeking. And if you look at any baby, whether it's human, puppy, you know, kitten, you know, bear or whatever, they want to explore their environment. They have this drive to find what's out there. And so there's an unconscious drive. It's part of our curiosity comes from this, right? You go to a new situation and the first thing you do is you check out what's going on around you. Uh, if somebody enters a room, Everybody looks just to see who or what that is. And it's an unconscious drive just to what's out in my environment. Is it safe or is it not safe? And it's actually an emotional circuit in the brain that I found mm -hmm. to be very interesting. Mm -hmm. And again, we, we see that as curiosity in adults. Uh, uh, another one that's uh, interesting is, is the uh, uh, we have two fear circuits. And again, I already mentioned the panic circuit. 
So that has to do with the relationship. And of course, the, the fear circuit for danger. We have the anger circuit. Um, gee, I'm missing one here. It'll come to me in a minute. Uh, then we have, uh, of course, lust. Oh yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna ask about that. Yeah, that comes up and you know it gets activated in uh, adolescence, right? And again, that's part of the things that that binds us together. And then, um, gee, I'm missing one here. There's uh, curiosity. Uh, uh, it'll come to me in a moment. But anyway, these circuits, again, they all just have to do with needs. And once you understand that emotions are just generating uh, a focus of your attention and energy in your body, and that's, that's the purpose of them, to protect ourselves, to help us to uh, uh, deal with, oh, play. Play is the other one. Play. Ah, okay. That's, that's a big and, one. And, and in fact, the guy that's first started doing a lot of this research, Panacep, he, he just passed away not too long ago. But uh, he worked with rats, and he found he could turn off all of the conscious, you know, higher parts of the brain. The rats still wanted to play. <laughs> Amazing. And it's how we learn social limits. I mean, if you work with kids, you know, uh, you know, like I've got this three-and-a-half-year-old great-granddaughter that we watch on Mondays and Tuesdays, and uh, she likes to tickle me, right? That's one of her favorite games. <laughs> and sometimes she gets a little bit too wild, right? And so it's like, okay. That's where we stop. This, 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 we're getting too wild here, or, or she does other stuff. And so they learn through play what yeah. social limits are. And as adults, we still connect through play. Again, it's, again, one of those things that uh, helps to bind us together. So, yeah, so, so the uh, seeking, the play, lust, uh, to uh, the panic and the, uh, ang and the fear of danger and anger and uh, caring circuit, those are the seven basic emotional circuits That's fascinating stuff uh, about play as adults we kind of <clears throat> we seem to almost frown upon play how would you how would you encourage an adult to explore this effect in a healthy well, it's way because a lot of times adults they, they see play as childish yeah but again it, it is a, it is a way that we connect with people and it reduces all kinds of good endorphins and stuff in the brain yeah. and does a lot of good stuff for you when you when you, when you play afterwards you know if you're stressed out it's a great stress releaser reliever you know yeah. it helps to again uh relax your body afterwards and, and again i should mention all of these circuits you know they vary from person to person you know like some people are more fearful than others and you know some people have a natural tendency to get more angry and again, all this stuff can be controlled by learning uh, for most people uh, there are a few exceptions and those are the ones that are in prison and stuff um, and probably the saddest example of how childhood affects uh, the circus is the babies that used to come out of Eastern Europe in the orphanages where they were never touched. You know, they were, they were changed, you know, the bottles would be propped up for them, but when they would cry, nobody would come and comfort them. And so when they get adopted, they have what they call attachment disorder. They have a hard time attaching to the yeah. adult. One of the hormones that uh, is connected to that uh, uh, circuit of caring is the um, uh, oxytocin. Yeah. And so you take uh, babies that have been, you know, and, and a natural birth parent and they play a game and you measure oxytocin levels yeah. and they go up through the roof. You take these babies and they stay very flat, mm. which is an indication that something in this uh, circuit has been suppressed uh, because it's, it's, you know, because it's never was responded to. Yeah. It's kind of like uh, when they would bind the, the feet of uh, women in China. And so as adults now, they become deformed and stuff. So mm -hmm. early childhood experiences can you know, change how these emotional circuits are, 
uh, expressed and how they connect in with, again, the thinking part of our brain, especially yeah. as we get beliefs about who we are and what the world's all about. That all, again, exercises some executive function over these emotions. Sure. And you know, I, I one example of that, I have one friend who told me that he was in a car accident, I think when he was about four years old, so he, yeah. he doesn't have the conscious memory of it, but he seems to me like anytime there's a new thing, well, not anytime, but very often I see if it's a new thing, he's very apprehensive. So he has this kind of apprehension towards new experiences. And I'm not like psychoanalyzing him or anything, but it seems like that, we could call it a trauma, it's a trauma, programmed him to be more cautious, I suppose. What do you, what's your take on that? Well, it, it may be personality too. Uh, yeah. there, there was a study in um, New Zealand, the, the Danine study, and they, they took every baby born in this town over the course of a year and they just started studying them, you know, their uh, physical, psychological, social. And this study has been going on for about 50 years. And so it's the best longitudinal study, long-term study of any group of people that's ever been done. And one of the things they found is by three and a half, the babies fit into five different groups. And these personalities tended to just continue throughout life. And so the biggest group was what they call the well-adjusted group. And they had, you know, they were fairly easygoing, going into new situations, they connected with people, that type of stuff. Then the next group was your, what they called, I think, the courageous group. And these are the kids that, you know, as they grew up, they were doing high, high gliding and they were doing all kinds of, you know, yeah. uh, crazy stuff, you know, the, the, the yeah. adrenaline junkies, right? <laughs> and, uh, the, you know, the, both of these groups did fine if their family groups were fine. Mm -hmm. Then you had a group that they called the reserve group. And these are the babies that were a little bit slow in getting into situations and stuff like that. Uh, and as adults, this, again, they tend to be, you know, more in the back room, you know, parties, they tend to kind of stay in the background for a while until they kind of got comfortable with it. Uh, but again, if they were in a healthy family, they did fine, but they just still mm -hmm. had that reserve quality, right? Mm -hmm. And then you had what they call the extremely shy kids, a small group of those. And those were most susceptible if they did not have a, a, a healthy family to become very introverted and have a lot of difficulty with relationships and stuff. Mm -hmm. The group that had the most trouble, I think it was about 5%, were the um, under-controlled group. And uh, these are the kids that when they do the marshmallow test, you know, I give you a marshmallow. If you yeah. wait five minutes, you can have another one. They would just gobble that sucker up, right? They mm -hmm. had a lot of, they lacked impulse control. And mm -hmm. so they were very, uh, mm -hmm. again, uh, impulsive. In fact, they found that teaching kids uh, to control themselves was probably one of the most beneficial things long-term as an wow. adult, is being able to manage your emotions and control them. But that group was the ones that were most represented in prisons and different kinds of problems and stuff, you know, drugs and, you know, that type of the stuff. 5%. And, uh, as they got older, those ones that were under control. Again, even they, though, in a positive family background, would do well. Yeah. Uh, so, it, it, you know... Your personality is not a, a sentence to how you're going to be. Again, it's partly how you learn to deal with that stuff. One, mm. one side uh, uh, story that I found to be just really fascinating, there's this guy that was doing uh, research on prisoners, sociopaths. Will Walsh? Bill Walsh? Huh? Bill Walsh? Might, might be. William sounds... Walsh, PhD, yeah? Yeah, yeah and, and yeah. they found that he had the I same I was just going to mention yeah, yeah. Just mention him. And, and, and it, was, it was funny reading about his story because he says, you know, I'm 
well, I like to win when I play games and stuff, you know, and I like to rattle cages. But, uh, <laughs> you know, he, again, he grew up in a family where he was adopted and he was, you know, really wanted. But it was funny because when he went back and looked at his uh, genealogy, he had all these, you know, serial killers, you know, Lizzie Borden, the axe <laughs> All these people were part of his family background, right? But he grew up in a healthy family, and yeah. so he, he tended to be fine. He had kids. He was married, you know, didn't do a fine life. But, yeah, tended to be more aggressive, you know, tended to be more, you know, wanted to win. <laughs> he said, since, since I've done done the research, I'm trying to moderate some of that more now that I understand you know, where some of that stuff's coming from. So, so you can yeah, absolutely. absolutely. So, this friend, so this friend of yours, part of it might be just his personality. You're right. You're right. Yeah, and I think uh, some of these things, the personality traits we have, have to do, of course, with the biochemistry that we're born with, and also certain certain genes that uh, uh, break down uh, neurotransmitters and hormones. Some of them are slower in some of us, and they're faster in others. So. And just those, the, and just, that's just the general iron. And, and again, understand that we talk like we know a lot of, about this stuff, but there's so much about the brain. We sure. have no understanding. I mean, sure. how does the brain use emotions to index information? We don't know. How does the brain actually remember something? We can't something? even find where memories reside in the brain. Like yeah. they literally are probably well, in another scattered. dimension. Yeah, if, if I remember... Uh, if I, I recall a picnic I was on, you know, the, the visual parts will light up, the taste buds will light up, you know, all the different centers that were going on at that time light up. How that works, we don't know. Yeah. So. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Renaud, this was an absolutely fascinating, very enlightening conversation. Thank you for that. Uh, this one I'm very excited to share with my audience. Uh, before we wrap it up, please tell the listeners where they can connect with you, where they can find your books, any other things you want to share? Uh, best and easiest way is to go to my website. It's ywhyyemotions.com. So you go to ywhyemotions.com. You get links to my books, to the YouTube channel. I got some freebies there. Just, uh, uh, just, and it's so much easier to remember than my name. So ywhyemotions.com. Yes. <laughs> ywhyemotions.com. Okay. Are you on social media? Uh, I'm on uh, Facebook and LinkedIn. Okay, if you want to I, 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 I don't, I don't, you know, I. You're not on the I, Instagram. I, 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 limit, I limit how much time I do. I don't do Instagram. I was, and all that I was stuff. looking for you on TikTok. Couldn't find you, bro. Yeah. <laughs> all right. No, well, for my own mental health, I limit that. You know, when I when I first started working with anxiety disorders before you know uh, the social the uh, internet came up, I, I would tell people first thing you need to do is turn off the evening news. And even now I say, you know, uh, limit how much time you spend on all that stuff for your own. In fact, there was a study in, in I think, Germany where they had uh, people, something where we're around 18 to mid-20s, just reduce their amount of internet social media time by an hour a day. And by all the measurements of happiness, they were, they were doing better. Of course, of course. <laughs> and, and, I mean, it, and, it, and it stayed with them for a long time because yeah. they, they were doing more productive things with their life. Of course, I mean, just not not being at a computer or looking yeah. staring at a device, just that alone has so many benefits we can't even describe. Uh, I actually the way I use social media now is I don't have it on my phones, mm. so I have to be here in the office at the computer. And every time I open it in a incognito browser, so because otherwise they steal all your cookies and they're tracking you. So yeah. I open an incognito browser and I have to log in every time. So <clears throat> I some days I just forget to log in, which is yeah. 
I don't really feel that desire, that addiction to be logging in. But it also has to do with the fact that I was off of social media for two whole, more than two whole years, which yeah. was also very, um, I think it was a good exercise to, to do. And, and and I you know I I like uh, some aspects of it. I mean I keep tracking my my son down in Texas and you know when my daughter was over in Europe in England doing her her masters you know we were able to zoom with her every Sunday and yeah. talk with her. And so there's some really good things about being able to do that. It's just that if you're spending all your time watching mm -hmm. all these lives that are so much better than yours, they really not. But they just you know what you see looks better. Yeah. Uh, it, it can create a lot of anxiety and absolutely discomfort inside of a person. Absolutely. Discontentment, I should say. Discontent. Yeah, that's the word. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for your wisdom, for sharing uh, a small part of your wisdom. And I am looking forward to reading the, the book in more depth because I took copious notes down, but I feel like we only scratched the surface with our conversation. So thank you again. Oh, yeah, we can go a lot of different directions. But yeah, it's, it's, it's a joy to be here. So thank you so much.